We've got a speaker for you. Give it up for Abdu Murray. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, what a great pleasure it is to be here, especially here in the shade. Um, I know you're not, but some of you have improvised pretty well, so that's fantastic. Thanks for having me and the uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries team here. I'm the North American Director with RZIM, and what a pleasure it is to be uh, sharing with you this afternoon, and of course this evening at 7 o'clock, I'll be on the main stage as well. Um, so thank you for the hospitality and for the energy. Um, I want to share with you, and people often ask me, and we do a lot of Q&As, and people often ask me about my, my name. What's the deal with Abdu and Murray? How, how did you get an Arabic first name and a Scottish last name? Uh, and the answer basically is, is that um, my last name is William Mirai, but when they came over from, the, uh, from uh, the Middle East, we said, what's your last name? And we, they, we said Mirai, and they said, oh, that sounds like Murray to me. So they changed it for us, which means I'm Lebanese and Scottish, which means that I fight with everybody. Um, <clears throat> but I wanna share with you the story of my journey from Islam to Christ. And when I say that, I'm not trying to be, it's not a grammatical mistake. I don't mean Islam to Christianity. I actually don't mean that. I'm very specific in why I say what I say. That I came from Islam to Christ because I went from a religious system that has a lot of rules, a lot of regulations, uh, all these sort of um, authorities about how you live your life. And while Christianity has that, the primary thing about Christianity is that you have a relationship with Christ himself. That's the primary difference between Christianity and every other ism and schism that's out there. Now, as I share with you the story, I'm reminded of another story, and I think it illustrates a good point. Now, it's a bit of a lawyer joke, and I'm a lawyer, so I can tell that joke. Uh, it's okay if I do it, but it's a story of a guy. He's like the quintessential, he's the stereotype of what you think of a lawyer as. You know, the guy who would lie, cheat, and do whatever he can to win his cases to make sure he amasses as much wealth as he possibly can. And that's what he does. And he does a very good job at it. And he gets this palatial estate and this huge piece of property. Very nature-filled, wonderful place. And so one day, he wants to enjoy the spoils of his labors. And so he's out in the in the woods and he's enjoying that. And he's looking uh, at the, the leaves are falling from the trees and the streams are streaming and the squirrels are being squirrely and all that. And then he comes across a bear in his property and the bear is hungry and it strips its teeth and it snarls at him and he begins to run away because he knows what's next. So as the bear is chasing him and he's running, he's panting and finally the bear knocks him down having caught up to him. And as it raised its huge paw to kill him, he says, oh my God, and the bear suddenly stops. And the, the leaves stop falling, and the streams stop streaming, and the squirrels stop being squirrely. And he, a boy, big voice booms from the sky, and a light comes down and says, you have denied me your whole life, and you have taught um, uh, falsehoods, and you have used the falsehoods to propagate yourself. Why should I save you now? And the lawyer, being a good lawyer, finds loopholes. He says, well, it would be hypocritical if I became a Christian, but could you make the bear a Christian? And God says, very well. And the light goes back up and the leaves start to fall and the squirrels get squirrely and the streams stream. And the bear puts his paws together and says, thank you, Father, for this food I'm going to receive. You can't outlawyer God. But the point of this story is that oftentimes when you look for truth and sometimes when you're not even looking for it and it confronts you, there is an element of freedom. And I'm going to talk about that tonight. The, the truth leads to freedom, but there is a price to pay when the truth confronts you, especially when it's contrary to how you've been living your life or the worldview you once had. 
And I can tell you, if there's one thing you get out of what I'm saying today, it's simply this, that when you talk to somebody who comes from a different religious system or a non-religious system, and you offer them the gospel, and you're wondering, why is it that no matter how much sense I might make to them, no matter how compelling the arguments are in favor of the gospel, they look at me and they nod politely, and they will not get it, even though they're very bright people. Why is that? It's because of this one reason. Truth has a price. It always has a price. And that's important for you to know. Because when you're asking someone to change a worldview, you're asking them to unclench their fist because they hold their worldviews with a conviction. An opinion you hold with an open hand. A conviction you hold with a closed fist. Not an angry closed fist, but you hold it tight to yourself. So when you pry that fist open, it actually hurts quite a bit. And I can tell you that from my own story, that's definitely the case. I was raised as what's called a Shia Muslim. Now you've heard about the Sunnis and the Shiites. If you're paying any attention whatsoever to the news, you'll know there's two main differences within the house of Islam. There's the Sunnis, which are the majority. Then you have the Shiites, which are actually properly called Shia, which are a minority within Islam. But the beliefs and practices are pretty much the same. Well, I was raised as a Shia, and I took it very seriously. I thought, I had this crazy idea when I was growing up. People should believe true things and not false things. And I would have none of this nonsense about if it's true for you, that's good for you. But this is my truth, and my truth is different than yours. And, you know, we won't try to talk to each other about whose truth is the real truth. I would have none of that because I thought true is true even if no one believes it, and false is false even if everyone believes it. So I thought I wanted to share my faith. I thought Islam was true, and I wanted other people to go to God's paradise because they believed in Islam. So I would engage in conversations. Now, where I grew up, I grew up in, in Michigan, and the area I grew up in in Michigan, though there's a huge Muslim enclave that lives actually in the Dearborn, Michigan area, the, the suburb I grew up in of Detroit was pretty much white. In fact, we were like sort of exotic. We were sort of the dash of olive oil in the sea of rice, as it were. And so we were exotic. This is way before 9-11. No one knew anything about Islam, really. And so they would ask me questions like, so what, what do you Muslims believe? These kind of things. And I would begin to tell them why I believe what I believe. But I would often engage in conversations. You know, I was an evangelist for Islam, but I wasn't flipping my Quran at people and preaching uh, brimstone and fire and these kind of things unless you become a Muslim. I was simply offering them what I thought was the truth, but I did it in a conversational way. And one of the ways I would start those conversations, I would ask people these simple questions. I'd ask them this, why are you a Christian? Now, in the area I grew up in, like I said, it was largely white, and now it's really diverse, by the way, but it was largely white back then. And when I would engage with people, I would engage with anybody. I was sort of an equal opportunity, faith knocker outer ever. It didn't matter if you were a, 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 a Jew, a Buddhist, a Hindu, an atheist, whatever it was, if you weren't a Muslim, I told you why you were wrong and I was right. But Christians were sort of low-hanging fruit. They were, the, they were more abundant then, at least people who claimed to be Christians are nominally so. So I would engage with them. So I'd ask them, why are you a Christian? And they'd say something like this. Well, uh, I guess uh, we go to the Presbyterian church on Christmas and, and Easter or Catholic church or whatever, pick a denomination. We go to there on Christmas and Easter, so I, I guess I'm a Presbyterian? And they'd answer like a question. I'm like, do you even know? Are you sure? Because they hadn't actually thought it through. So I, my, my follow-up question was this. Are you telling me tradition is your primary reason for believing something? And they'd say, essentially, yes. And I'd say, 
how can you trust your eternal destiny, your eternal soul, to a religious system that somebody else believes? Have you thought it through yourself? And the answer was sort of what I call, a friend of mine calls, the Simon and Garfunkel response. It was the sounds of silence. There was nothing in terms of an actual in-depth response. So that's when I would see that there was a vacuum created. There was no intellectual rigor. There was no real thought through what they thought, wh why they believe what they believed. And I would begin to challenge everything about their religious system. See, Muslims uh, might, might surprise you to know some things, but Muslims believe that there is only one God. That word for God is Allah, which means the God. That's what it literally means. Um, so Muslims believe that they believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, whether they do or not is another question, but that's what they believe. And they believe that the Bible was once God's word, that the Torah, the five books of Moses, what are called the Zabur, or the Psalms of David, and then the Injil, or the Gospel of Jesus, the Torah, the Psalms, and the Gospel, were actually revealed by God, but became corrupted over time, and the Quran, the holy book of the Muslims, came to replace and fix all the corruptions and bring us back to true monotheism. So having this belief that the Bible was corrupted, I would begin to launch my objections at the Bible. I'd say something like, how do you know that the Bible you have today is the same thing that was written 2,000 years ago or longer? It's been translated and retranslated and, and changed into different languages and all these different things. How do you know that, it's not the, that it hasn't been changed? In fact, let me give you reasons why I believe it was in fact changed. And most Christians had no response to what I was saying. But fundamental to my belief as a Muslim was this idea, you've heard this phrase, right? Allahu Akbar, you've heard this phrase? Now, when you usually hear it, something bad happens, right? And now you're all very nervous because in a public arena, an Arab guy said it in a crowd. Um, but this is unfortunate because oftentimes Muslims say Allahu Akbar, which literally means God is greater. They don't say it as a sort of battle cry. They say it as a prayer and a praise. They're saying, God is greater, he is the greatest possible being. So if they walk into a home that's beautifully decorated or a wonderful place, they'll say, Allahu Akbar, look how God is, how great God is for blessing you this way. If they get bad news, if they get like a bad medical report, they'll say, Allahu Akbar, God is greater than my circumstances. God's greatness is the fundamental underpinning of all of Islam. So I, as a devout Muslim, would look at Christians and I'd say, your corrupt Bible teaches things that don't highlight God's greatness. It insults God's greatness. That's what I used to believe. So I'd say, this Trinity thing, you guys believe that God is one and three. Well, if God is truly great, as you Christians wish was true, then why does the Father need help from the Son and the Holy Spirit? If God is great, he doesn't need help. But your Son and your, and your Holy Spirit help the Father. So it seems like he's not great at all. Can you explain this to me? Nothing. Then I'd say, you're telling me that God became encapsulated and captured in a man's body? The God who creates this universe that's billions of light years across, filled with billions upon billions of stars, but also creates infinitesimal subatomic particles. That same God becomes trapped into a man's body, and that man's body has to eat, sleep, and then eventually dies at the hands of the very sinners he created, and you're telling me he's great? I've heard your hymns, How Great Thou Art. You ought to change it to How Great Thou Art Not, because your God is not great. In light of that kind of an onslaught, most Christians had no response to what I was saying. By the way, as a caveat, every single thing that I thought insulted God's greatness, like the Trinity and the incarnation and the cross, are the very things that demonstrate his greatness. And I'll explain that in a moment.
But most Christians had no response, but there were a couple of annoying Christians who actually knew what they were talking about. <laughs> now, they weren't annoying because they were jerks. Well, a couple of them were, but not most of them. They actually knew what they were talking about. Now, I'm the kind of guy, I don't like to argue and quarrel, but I do like to engage in debate, a reasoned back and forth. I like that. I don't want to get heated and, and quarrel some, but I do like debate. And I like to win my debates, thank you very much, and if you would just roll over and die in front of me, that would be great. But they didn't want to do that. They actually had some responses of, of their own. So I began to look into Christianity because of all the worldviews that I had found that I was objecting to, Christians were the ones who actually had some kind of a response back to me that made me think a little bit more than other ones did. Well, I was at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and there was two guys who were going door to door at the apartment complexes there in my undergraduate days. Now, if you know anything about Ann Arbor, Michigan, it's like Berkeley, California, but cold. Extremely liberal, doesn't really have a much, much truck, uh, much, much um, uh, capacity to endure a conservative Christian voice. But two Baptist guys were going door to door at the apartments saying, let's talk about Jesus. Well, they got a lot of doors slammed in their face. But then they came to my apartment. And I opened the door and they're like, hey, we're from the Baptist church down the street. Want to talk about Jesus? And I'm like, you guys deliver? This is great. <laughs> so I invited these two guys in. And these two guys, fantastic human beings, really. One, they're both, they're both, both pretty old guys, but one was this tall, pencil-thin, really tall, almost stone-bald guy. The other one was a short guy with hair coming out of everywhere. He had a cop stash going and everything. Um, and they were like my walking number 10. That's how I thought of them. Um, so I invited these two guys into my apartment, and I made them very uncomfortable for hours at a time, giving my objections and responding to what they were saying. But they were like the Terminator. You know, you knock them down, they kind of lumber back up at you, and they would not stay down. But I could tell something was important about these guys. They actually loved me. They wanted me to go to heaven, and I wanted them to go to God's paradise. So we had this mutual desire for each other's benefit. So we engaged in a lot of debate, but it was friendly debate. They didn't always give me the best answers in the whole world, but sometimes they gave me the best answer you can give someone who's searching. Their answer was this, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. And then they did. They came to our apartment like Thursday after Thursday after Thursday for like three and four hours at a time. If I didn't have exams or a class, they would come and hang out with us. I began to see something that I need to get a little more substantive in my responses to these guys. So I began to actually study the Bible itself, not just Christianity. And I was studying Christianity in my undergraduate days because I had these professors, I was doing uh, uh, minors in comparative religion and I was studying a lot of different things, especially Christianity. And I had this professor, he, I believe he was Swedish. And the reason why I thought that, because he sounded like the chef from the Muppets. Um, but he gave me this real, he gave me lots and lots of ammunition because he took him from a liberal school. Uh, he would say, this is the problems with the Bible. But he would give me both sides of the argument, but I had all this ammunition now to use against these guys, but nothing was working. So I walked down the street thinking about how I can actually show these guys that the Bible is false. I wanted to show them a fundamental contradiction, something that's important, like the, 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 this gospel says Jesus was the son of God, this one says he wasn't the son of God, something like that. So I'm walking down the street, I'm at the corner uh, of uh, South University and State Street, and I see these Gideons handing out Bibles, and I grab one of these little tiny Bibles, try to convert the Gideon to Islam, but it didn't work. Um, I took this Bible, I still have it by the way, it's in my bag in my car right now took this little green Bible back to my apartment. And I sat down 
in this chair to find something that was a contradiction. I could make sure to, to take these two guys down for the count and then offer them Islam as a substitute. And that's when it hit me. Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and following. People are coming to Luke, uh, sorry, to John the Baptist to be baptized. That's why he's called that. Um, and he says to them an interesting statement. He says, do not even begin to think to yourself, you have Abraham as your father. Because he was talking about the wrath to come, God's coming judgment. He says, don't even begin to think to yourself, you have Abraham as your father, as if that would save them from God's wrath. For I tell you, God can raise up sons of Abraham or children of Abraham from the stones. It's very important you understand what he's saying there. He's saying tradition does not save you, truth saves. Now here's the interesting thing about that. That's what I was saying. When I asked a Christian, why are you a Christian? They'd say tradition, I'd say not good enough. John the Baptist was agreeing with me. But here's the interesting thing about this. In all the time that I've been asking Christians this question, I never gave a Christian a chance to ask me, why are you a Muslim? Now, what I would have done was probably give them 15 evidences for why Islam is true and all this stuff, but the fundamental reason would have been tradition. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it God's poetry that he would use a book that I believed was corrupted, but he preserved it for 2,000 years, bored aloft by the power of the Holy Spirit so that a, a skeptic could sit in this ratty little chair in his ratty apartment reading this little tiny book, and that would convict him that he is not being objective. Here's what I would say to you. As an apologetics ministry, RGIM is about apologetics. Now, that sounds like a fancy word. All it means is defense. <clears throat> in, in the Greek, it means apologetics means defense. It's apologia. You give a defense for the Christian faith found in 1 Peter 3.15. As apologists, we try our best to give well-reasoned but eloquent-sounding argument. But here's the reality. Whether it's Ravi Zacharias or Lee Strobel or me or any of our speakers here at Creation Fest, as eloquent as they might be, none of them will be as powerful as the Bible itself. A skeptic sitting in a chair was convicted not to become a Christian that day, but convicted to look into it by the power of the words in that Bible. May you never speak with lofty arguments in a closed Bible. Open that book. It changes hearts and minds. So what happened that day was not that I became a Christian. Here's what happened. I realized that I was being a bit of a hypocrite, that I was telling people, don't follow tradition, follow what's true. But was I willing to do the same thing? Now, what happened was my mindset shifted slightly. You know, if you have a, a ship that's leaving New York and it's going across the Atlantic Ocean, maybe to go to Portugal, the westernmost country in Europe, and it's off by like 10 degrees in its course, when it's a mile out of port, it's not that far from where it's supposed to be. Five miles, a little bit more. 50 miles, it's getting out of, it's, now it's in trouble. You cross the Atlantic Ocean and you're not going to end up in Portugal. You're going to end up in Africa, a slowly different cont continent. A small course shift over a long period of time can result in a different destiny altogether. And that's what happened that day. I decided, sitting there, that I was gonna put every worldview, especially Islam and Christianity, to the test. Fully confident Islam would win the day, but I was going to put that to the test. So, I did that. Now, I was still a little bit hesitant because I knew somewhere in the back of my mind, there's a consequence to all this. When you change your worldview, especially from the, from the East and the Middle East, if you change your worldview from that part of the world, you change who you are. 
everything about you. There was a, a writer named Sam Solomon who, who, who uh, put it this way. If you took a square and you put a dot in the middle, in the square, in the, in the West, you are the square. And religious identity is the tiny little dot in the middle. It's a very small part of who we are, our religious identity. In the East and in the Middle East, it's exactly the opposite. The square is your religious identity, and the dot is you. Who you are religiously colors everything about your community, your family, your schooling, everything about you. So when you change your worldview, you don't just change your opinions, you change you. And then you change how other people see you as well. And I knew this in the back of my mind. It wasn't obvious to me, but it was in the back of my mind. I began to search through some things with this shifted mindset, and that's when I came across a challenger to everything I had believed as a Muslim. Remember what I said? That Muslims believe that the Bible was once revealed as God's word, but then became corrupted, and then the Quran came to fix it. So you had revelation, corruption, and then correction in that order. But with this slightly changed view of mind, I began to read the Quran, once again, the holy book of the Muslims, and I found out in the fifth chapter of the Quran, verses 46 and 47, where it says in Arabic, it says, Well, Yahkum Ahlilinjil bima anzalahi fi, women lam Yahkum bima anzalah, fa'ilakahum al fasikun. It says, People of the gospel, it's a command to Christians, people of the gospel, you should judge, present tense, right now, by what God has revealed in the gospel. And if you don't, you're among the rebellious. One translation says you are among the evildoers. So did you get it? The Quran says Christians must judge by what God has revealed in the gospel, and if you don't, you're evil. Well, hold on a second. Wait a minute. Why is the Quran referring to the gospel as a source of righteous judgment if the gospel was corrupted? Do you see the timeline problem? Then you go in the fifth chapter, same chapter, verse 68, when it says, O people of the book, which is a euphemism for Christians and Jews, it says, you have no foundation. It literally says in Arabic, uh, you are literally on nothing until you observe, present tense once again, the Torah, the gospel, and all the revelations from your Lord. How could they possibly have observed the Torah and the gospel if they were hopelessly corrupted? Do you see the problem? It becomes a very serious issue because I want to be intellectually honest but I also have a fierce sense of loyalty to my own worldview, like most people do. And so I am engaging in what Al Gore would call an inconvenient truth, that one belief system is conflicting with another. And in fact, the Quran is telling me the Bible is right. Now, do you see the, the dilemma here? Stretch your mind with me just for just a moment, because this is important. If the Quran is saying that the Bible is the authority and the Bible contradicts the Quran, then the Quran will be wrong because the Bible is the authority. But if the Quran is saying the Bible is right and the Bible is wrong, the Quran is still wrong because the Bible was right. So you run into this very serious problem, this dilemma. But I began to see something else, something more philosophical, more important to me personally, not just intellectually, but personally. Remember what I said to you? Allahu Akbar, God is greater. God is the greatest possible being there could be. That's a fundamental issue for the Muslim. Now, if you're gonna have God be the greatest possible being, what must he be like? He must be all-powerful, otherwise he's like Zeus or Hera or, you know, Hercules. So he must be all-powerful, but he also must be trustworthy. Because if he's not trustworthy, then why would you believe anything he says? And by the way, if God can lie, 
how would you know? He's going to fool you every time. So for a God to be truly great, he's got to be all-powerful and trustworthy. Keep that in mind, because here's the problem. If God, according to Muslims, as, and I agree with them, would be the greatest possible being, and if he revealed the Bible, but it became corrupted over time to include all these blasphemous lies, like the Trinity and the Incarnation and this kind of thing, only two things follow. Follow me closely now. If the Bible was revealed by God, it became corrupted, either God couldn't stop the corruption of Scripture, or he wouldn't. If he couldn't, he's not all-powerful. If he's not all-powerful, then he's not great. But every Muslim believes that God is great. So that's not open to you. But if he wouldn't, let's say he could stop the corruption, but he chose not to, then that makes him untrustworthy. Because if he couldn't stop the Torah and the, Zabur, the Psalms and the gospel from becoming corrupted, why believe the Quran won't become corrupted? He's not batting a thousand. So why would you trust him with anything? And if he's not trustworthy, he's not great. Do you see it? Do you see the dilemma? That if I want to believe in a God who is truly great, he must be able to prevent the Bible from becoming corrupted, and he must be willing to prevent the Bible from becoming corrupted. And here's the thing. When you look at the history, and I was trying to get around this, I thought, oh, maybe the Bible was corrupted after the Quran came, so I can deal away with all these issues in the Quran talking about the Bible. And you look at the evidence for the Bible, and it's amazing. You look at almost 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in Greek alone that show us that what we have now was what was written then. Almost 25,000 copies in Greek and other languages alone that show us that what we have in the New Testament is worthy and worthy of your reverence and worthy of your respect. And then you look at the Old Testament, and we're finding more and more fragments in the ground. It's like every time we shove a shovel in the ground, we pull up a piece of the Old Testament to say, this was true. The evidence is there. And then the dilemma, philosophically, is there. If God is great, he would and could, and history shows, did preserve his word. But what am I to do with this? Because this is not good news for me at this point, because it means that I have to change my worldview. It means I have to actually make a choice, and I don't want to make a choice. So what do you do at this particular moment? You do what any good coward does. You syncretize. In other words, you make them say the same thing. So I began for years to take the Quran and the Bible and try to make the message mesh together, that they're all saying the same thing after all, and so we don't need to have uh, these differences. And so I started playing with the words. Like when the Bible says, uh, God, Jesus says in the Bible, I and the Father are one. Well, it's pretty hard to get around that. He's saying, well, he sounds like he's saying he's God. And then you see the Quran, which says unbelievers are those who say that Jesus is God. Well, how do you reconcile those two things? Well, I tried to reconcile it. Say, oh, when he says we, I and the Father are one, he means we're one and the same in our mission, in our goal, in our message. See, I'm playing around with the words a little bit to avoid the consequences. But then the Quran denies that Jesus died on a cross. It said that they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but it looked like it to them. It denies the historicity of the actual cross itself, one of the most sure facts of history we ever have. I'm like, how do I get around that? Because the Bible talks about the crucifixion. That's, that, that, that's the main point. So what do I do? I say, oh, Old Testament, it says they didn't kill him. It was God who struck the Messiah. So they didn't kill him, and the Quran says they didn't kill him, but it was God who did it. You see what I was doing there? I was playing with the words for my own sense of comfort. I didn't want to make a decision. 
And C.S. Lewis puts it so beautifully, and all of us do this in every walk of life we have, sometimes religious, sometimes in business, whatever it might be. But he says this beautiful statement. He says, if you look for truth, you will find comfort. But if you look for comfort, you will get neither truth nor comfort, only soft soap to begin with, but in the end, despair. We look for comfort, and we sacrifice truth on the altar of our comfort. And I was doing that for a long time, for years. So what ended up happening was, I was trying all this. If you've ever read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you know something. Frankenstein is not the name of the monster. The monster has no name. Frankenstein is the name of the doctor. See, the monster has no identity. And what it is, is the conglomeration of dead things sewn together and a current runs through it and somehow life is created. But it hates its own identity and so results in death. That's what I was doing. I was taking dead things, sort of a liberalized form of Christianity and Islam, which has no salvation in it. I sewed them together and tried to make a current run through it and then say, oh, this is my religion. But it only led to death. It was a Frankenstein's monster of a faith. Well, some friends had invited me to church. And for some reason, I said, yes. Invite them. They come. I got up early that morning. And I got up really early, way before I needed to. I took out my Quran and my Bible. And by this point, I had them sticky-tabbed sticky and color-coded about where they disagreed. And I wanted to make one of the disagreements be reconciled without overly hyper-rationalizing everything. I wanted those things to reconcile. And I couldn't do it. That morning, I just couldn't do it to my satisfaction. So my friends had pulled up. I walked out of the house. I got into the car. And I was, you can probably already tell, I'm a bit of a talker. Um, but I was silent that morning. And I sat in that car. And my friends are like, what's the matter? What's wrong? I'm like, oh, I don't know. It's gorgeous outside. We should go do something fun. Go to the beach, play volleyball or something. What are we going to church for? Like, hey, you promised. I said, okay, fine, we'll go. So we did. I had one of those experiences at church, and maybe you've had this, where you're, in, you're sitting there in the seats, and the pastor's talking to you, not anybody else, you. He read your Facebook posts. He broke into your email account. I don't know what it was he saw, but he's got your number. And normally that's convicting and it's uplifting, and you want to change something about yourself so you can go and sort of go forth and you know, do justice and change your life. That happened to me that day, but I didn't like it one bit. It bothered me to my core. Here's what he said at the end of the church service. He says, God has been leaning on the door of your life for your whole life. And if you would just stop leaning back, he will flood every room of your house and clean it. Is that you? And I knew it was me. And I hated every bit of knowing that. So when the church service is over, I walk outside into the vestibule there in my hometown, and all the people I knew from high school were like, hey, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, my friends dragged me here or whatever it was. Um, but I was visibly bothered. Walk out into the parking lot, and the woman who's now my wife was standing next to me. And my other two friends were in front of me. And I began to hunch over. I was being forced down, pushed down by some kind of force on my back. I was hunched over like this, trying to keep myself upright, and I closed my eyes. And I don't know if it's a vision or what it was, but I could see a picture of myself with these two building-sized books crushing me like Atlas trying to hold up the world. And I began to sob. Now, I'm, okay, I'm Mediterranean. I'm, I'm a hand waver, you know, I'm emotional. 
but I'm not going to cry in public in front of a girl, for heaven's sake. <laughs> but I did, quite a bit. And I was saying this, I can't do it. The burden's too much. It's too heavy. I can't make them agree. Now, I'm crying, and Nicole, who is my wife, uh, she was crying. She wasn't then, but she's crying. She's like, he's huge. If he falls down and passes out, how are they going to get him up? <laughs> well, this is the part of the story where people say, and I became a Christian in that parking lot. That didn't happen exactly. What did happen was this. I realized that I had been sitting on this fence for years now, but it wasn't this nice sort of like, uh, wood fence that's got like the, the flat slats on it. You can kind of lean back and enjoy the day with a piece of straw in your mouth. Not one of those. It was a chain link fence, you know, with the points on top. So no matter how much you sit on it and you shift your weight, it still hurts. Well, that's the fence I was sitting on. And I hated this fence. I hated it. And I was going to make it my mission to tear it apart link by link if I had to. I would not die in indecision. So I graduated law school. I passed the bar exam. My friends were either all working or at school. And so I had eight hours a day before I started my job at the new law firm. I had months before I started it. I would spend eight hours a day studying Islam and Christianity and every other ism and schism you can think of. And as I began to do that, I began to see that the evidence for the Christian faith, the, the historicity, the fact that the Bible has been faithfully transmitted, that in that Bible, Jesus claims to be the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world, that as a matter of history, not mere hope, but as a matter of history, he died on a cross, and then he actually physically rose from the dead to prove that he was right. I intellectually assented to that up here, but I wouldn't let it go 17 inches south to the most important place I needed to have it, not just in my mind, but also in my heart. I wouldn't. I was sitting at a desk in my parents' home, and on the left side of my desk, piled as high as my eye, was all my evidence for Islam. On the right side, piled equally high, if not higher, was all the evidence for the gospel of Jesus. Playing on the internet uh, over the uh, on a computer behind me was a debate between a Muslim and a Christian on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. I was literally surrounded by the evidence. And I found this so compelling I began to ask God why I can't embrace it as true. I know it's actually true, but why can't I embrace it as true? And there's a difference between those two things. I, I started praying, God, why, why, why? And then he answered my prayers. Because my dad walked by and he looked at me and he smiled at me. That's why. How do you plunge your hand into your father's chest, pull it out, and show it to him. How do you do that? That's when I realized something. It wasn't that I couldn't believe, it's that I wouldn't believe. That the price was too high for me to pay, personally. That's, that was one of the biggest decisions in my life to say, am I willing to go somewhere even though it hurts because of the sake of truth? Well, I began to read the Bible now, not just to see if it's true, but to pull the truth out of it. And I began to see the beauty of the person of Christ, of who he actually is and what he does. And that's when I realized everything I was hoping was true in Islam was actually true in the gospel. Remember what I said? Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest possible being for Muslims. Well, this is what I found. If God is the greatest possible being, then he would necessarily... He would automatically express the greatest possible ethic. What is the greatest possible ethic? It's love. 
So if he's the greatest possible being, he would express the greatest possible ethic, but he wouldn't do it in a half-baked way. The greatest possible being would express love in the greatest possible way. And what is the greatest possible way to express love? It's not a mystery. Those of you who have sweethearts and people you love and significant others or whatever, you've done nice things for them, like give them chocolates or candies or give them a nice note or whatever, but that's partially about you. Because you want them to think that you're you know, Romeo and she's your Juliet. Don't take it too far because that story ends badly. But there's a romanticness there, but it's also sort of selfish. But if you have someone you truly love in your life, you know you truly love them, not because you give them nice things that make you seem like a good person, but you're willing to do anything for them, even if it hurts you. The greatest possible expression of love is self-sacrifice. But we do it for those who love us back. We don't do it for those who hate us. It's not in our nature to do that. So our love, even sacrificial love, has limits. But if God is the greatest possible being, he would express love, which is the greatest possible ethic, and he would do it in the greatest possible way, which is self-sacrifice. But God doesn't sacrifice for those who love him. God sacrifices for those who hate him. I remember where I was when I read the words in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. For God demonstrates his love, boundless, endless, pure love, and that while we were sinners, God haters, Christ died for us. What I want to tell you is this, if God is the greatest possible being, and I believe that he is, he simply must be the God of the cross and empty tomb. He is a God who is not so weak that he runs from adversity. He is a God who is not so scared that he runs from a cross, but he embraces it and he transforms things. That's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that it takes paradoxes and solves them. The God who is truly great loves us so much and yet suffers. A God who is boundless and cannot be harmed somehow suffers for your and my sake. He's the God who turns uh, thorns into crowns, crosses into thrones, and sinners into saints. That's an amazing truth, an amazing truth. That's why I think of that hymn that says so beautifully, when I surveyed the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died, by richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? James Stewart says in the strong name, that that phrase, he led captivity captive, is such a beautiful phrase of the New Testament. It means that he, God used evil to subserve his ends, not the ones who are evil. They thought to root out his doctrines, not knowing by that very name, they were implanting imperishably the name of the one they tried so hard to eradicate. They thought to throw him outside the gates, not realizing that they had lifted up all the gates of heaven to let the king of glory come in. They thought they had nailed him to the tree, not realizing that they brought the world to his feet. They thought that they had him hid, uh, pinned, helpless, and against the wall, but it was God himself who had tracked them down. God did not... Dis conquered despite the dark mystery of evil, God conquered through it. The greatest possible being, expressing the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible way. And my friends, when I realized that, when I read those words, the Bible itself, stimulating my mind and stirring my heart, that's when I realized that everything I wished was true about God was actually true in and only in the gospel itself. And that's when God made me 
a son from a stone. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. <laughs>